0: So one of the things to be reminded of in what the Song of Solomon has been written for is God expressing in part an enigma, in part through what we would say the natural realm, those things that Romans 1.19 would declare the hidden attributes and the power of God, The things that have been revealed and what God has made, the things that test our faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen and yet we do see. The mystery of what it is to contemplate how relationships are forged and it is not indefinite. The tenure is, but it is meant to speak of a permanency that God is showing to a world. That has highlighted leniency and flippancy. It does not mean that there are not at times within the context of relationships severities that test the metal, even as Rivers reminded us of the refinement that we shine as gold. And one of the things that we discover is that God has no problem highlighting people with severe problems. Solomon didn't have quite the stellar life in his kingly realm as his father David did. He would have been one that rolled the dice and drank his fill. He tested everything imaginable to his carnal desires. Yet God allowed him to to come up with a book even that we have enjoyed studying as well as now reading through Ecclesiastes. The predicament of men when moved to express themselves outside of the spiritual devotion to God, they exercise folly and they inherit Unfortunately, a whirlwind. In this book, the Lord allowed Solomon to find his eyes set upon a woman. Now, whenever there is a correlation between what Jesus' is pictured does and what a man, through Scripture, is allowed to be shown as a failure in, We have to keep that line because the Lord does not fail. We also need to understand that the beauty in what we see when we as well can inventory our own failures is that God has never canceled his love for each one of us in spite of that. We do, he doesn't. Think of how many times that a failure in your life would have discounted you from a furtherance in either what you believed about yourself or what others ought to believe about you and what you think God's reaction could be towards you. And when we look at the failure of men towards us in what we would say our failures, but we ask ourselves, so how does God feel about this? He says, grace, grace, my grace. And it's because he's in love with us. When we look at the two pictures of the individuals presented here, one touted as the beloved and the other as the Shulamite, we see one who has been obviously introduced to us as the king of the land, who has had obviously no small fear of admiration from the maidens. Or the admiration of the men of war and their prowess. He is undisputed and he is not questioned with regard to what has captured his eye, which is a maiden of the field. We know that this is Solomon. We know that the woman, though not per se stated, but her name could mean akin to Solomon A woman of peace, Solomon. He was the king of peace. And so we know that the Lord's showing a correlation in terms of how relationships are to proceed peacefully. Doesn't mean that there aren't tensions. And some of us have, through previous studies, understood that when their intentions of another person seem to lead to tensions between two people you have to look at a bridge if you go under any bridge something is suspending it and it may be indeed reinforced concrete with rebar and the engineering that takes place there or it may be with a cabling system but rest assured in order to cross in order to have a sense of safety traveling under It's a tension, it's a force of tension that's keeping that thing up. So God has no problem in marriages or love stories allowing tension to be in place. It's what you do with the tension, and it's how you trust God in that force of tension. Because those are the things that are the remedy to ultimately making sure it doesn't fall down and you're able to cross it and you are able to be assured going under it. He is quite a civil engineer and even how he's engineered love, it's an important thing to understand about God. Tensions aren't a reason for questioning whether love is indeed relevant or whether it can hold up. It's the very premise it's an attribute of why we can marvel. It does hold up. If done right and the tensions are in place, it has an extraordinary work that we can trust in because we're all being worked on and the Lord's using us. Not to be redundant to not progressing in the teaching, it's just that I know that when people come in to a house of worship, It can be a hard situation that they've come from. And we have to understand that the purpose of being here isn't to say that that marks the end, but rather it's an opportunity to say, ah, a new beginning, not with something else, but to say, God's got something in this right now. And I want it. Because what God gives to me is good. It's always good. What God allows in my life is good. It's always good because the word declares that there is a good work prepared beforehand by God that we should walk in it. Intentions are not one of those things that we say, well, then it couldn't be of God. Of course it's of God. As we pick this up, there is a beautiful picture here that does point to what Obviously, rivers walked us through very consummately. For it says, while the king, in verse 12, is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms. In the vineyards of Engedi. The first reference is important because it helps anchor us in a time in which, in this case, the beloved was rendering a table prepared before her. And so, if you'll take a look, and I'll direct your attention to that, in Luke, and this would be in the 12th chapter, I believe. Nope, 22nd chapter. Right at verse 14, the hour had come. Today the hour had come. It was time to indulge in a table prepared by the Lord that we would remember him. It was indeed a banqueting table and your faith needs to project beyond the simple cup and the simple juice. From God's perspective, it's his banqueting table. And this Shulamite right now is remembering the king at his table. Jesus will say to them as he sits down with the 12 apostles, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this, pass over with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, but behold the hand of my betrayers with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he is being betrayed by. And then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. There's a lot of drama here. The emphasis, though, isn't on a betrayal that in fact has been prophesied. It's on the beauty of a congregating group of men who were sitting with their bridegroom, not yet knowing that's his role, and he, with them, had a passionate or fervent desire to dine with them. We saw a cup offered, we saw bread broken, and we saw another cup offered, And this speaks obviously of a feast, or what we would call a multi-course meal. For the eternally minded, it speaks literally of a banquet feast that will be unreserved, come with frequency, come with joy, come to have sustenance, come to have fellowship. And we don't know what it all means, we have seasons in which we see banqueting tables, and they do bring a joyous outcome of a full stomach and of great opportunity to enjoy company. But this is a spiritual picture of an eternal work that God is doing. And He says, as one right now documented by an observer, the Shulamite, the king has set a table before me, my heart. Touched. The table in the home, the banqueting table in this house, is to touch our hearts, to put us in remembrance. One who appreciates it and one who is passionate about preparing it. Jesus had this prepared, he was passionate about it, fervent to eat it with them. And so it does speak of a love banquet. Oh, you may like to see turkey and yams and mashed potatoes and gravy. That will come in things that yet you have not tasted of. But to the Lord, for his bride to indulge in that which he has prepared, it's a part of love. That's why we do it. As he was fervent to eat it with them, he awaits to eat it once again with us in a very special place called heaven. And that's one of the things about This passionate book is it literally does speak of a short tenure on earth with a timely deliverance into a great banqueting place with a great king and his eye upon each one of us, not only as special guests invited, but most importantly to have the seat of honor next to him as the bride. When you go to weddings, The bride and groom usually sit at a place of honor where when the ceremony has been satisfied, the guests who are at their tables dining always are doing this. They're checking out the bride and groom, sitting together at their feast, commemorating their time of a public declaration of being in love. It stirs the heart I found that both with weddings and as well with funerals, the heart is stirred. One, the projection of what is yet to come, and one, the release of that which has been confirmed. There's an appointment. But it's not to a lesser thing. It's actually to the greatest thing. There's a feast that awaits. Solomon is allowed to pen this drama because it does speak about the Lord's heart for his bride. And the bride right now is in deep recognition of this awesome king, this one who literally men of renown fear and who will do anything for even the giving up of their life to serve. The maiden's heart's are fluttered, twitterpated, cooing, And Solomon not being distracted by their attention, which of course now separates the Solomon that we also know well, failed. He is allowed to portray one whose focus is solely on this woman who is a hard worker in the field, can probably match her brothers stone by stone in what she's able to do. Why would her brothers have sent her out there if she was not a match to them? The strength and beauty that's presented in this is remarkable because women have a strength and fortitude. I recognized that just in my time shortly for about a week being with Christy, such a strength. We actually spent a lot of time laughing at me because of what it was she does. Because Zachary's about 150 pounds now. So he's got some good resistance. Not that he wants to be resistance, he's just he's a big boy now. He's not the little guy that we diapered once so easily. A strong, beautiful, spiritual woman And the Lord would say, that's the way I see you guys, strong, beautiful, industrial. Part of this right now in simply camping out here is to say, we do what we do because it is, from the Lord's perspective, a love banquet. We're saying, Lord, we love you. We do love you. We have an opportunity not to be mired in our failures, but to realize he's not focusing at all on our failures. He's focusing on our beauty and our strength and our desire, our fervent desire to have fellowship with him. That's the beauty of this story. There's other pictures in here, too, that I do want to address. The teaching today, if I had to title it, which I did, and I didn't have to, but I want to, is simply this love. Poetry, potency, and passion. Poetry. The mystery of the language of people to describe things that nature is speaking about concerning God. Some poets get it right. Some poets don't get it right at all. But Hallmark did. They've made their millions and billions off of the hearts of people who want to tell someone something about love. There are sympathy cards. There are get well cards. There are good friend cards. But the ones that outsell them all are the ones that express a desire to tell someone that they are loved. That's why one of the biggest dilemmas in school when I taught was Valentine's Day that turned into confetti that turned into confusion turned into Twitter patient or rejection but I know one thing that was hot with that particular day and that was the chocolates that would be dripping and melting from the faces of people saying that's the fruit of this day something sweet to consider. That has nothing by comparison of the banquet that we're looking at right now. A love story right now that truly, if you go from beginning to end, is speaking of the poetry of love, the potency of love, and the passion concerning love. And we barely touch it, but God touches all of it and makes it relevant. Let me give you a considerate thought right now, just before I move beyond that verse and where we were at. When Jesus is the love of your life, and I took note to carefully pen this, he will give you a life to love. So I'll repeat it. When Jesus is the love of your life, he will give you a life to love. John 10.10 is where you can find basically where he hides that in the plural. He speaks it overtly, but there is in that, in this particular time, where he introduces it, the challenge of what some people have poised against him. And he simply puts it this way, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. The you I personalized; it's they, meaning inclusive. You do not have to feel any less included in what Jesus said than what I did in personalizing it to you. I've come to give you life abundantly. But notice this too, because I did plan in the phraseology for it to be encouraging, and that is this. When Jesus is the love of your life, he will give you a life to love. An abundant life, yes, that's his promise, but also the love of your life. God didn't create us for an independent work. He created us for a unified work. The timing is always God's. Can you wait out the clock? Have you been clocked with a clock? You see, the patience that we exercise here in this tenure Is also patience that shows God, no matter how long it takes, Lord, I believe that I shall be with you. So he says, huh, let's try that practicum out. Let's see how that works for you. But it's not an indefinite wait. When we wait in faith for our beloved, as the Shulamite, we are saying, but I'm at work. And though others may esteem me lightly, I may not be what everybody else thinks they are or even how they've judged me. I wait in faith. I wait believingly. I'm not going to be exhausted. I'm not going to be frustrated. My eyes are on you, Lord. And when your eyes are on the love of your life, Jesus, he gives you a life to love. That's why very often when we talk in this season, our hearts do find them beating a bit bolder, a bit syncopated. And the reason for that is because God is love. Love is of God. He's doing it. He does it. He's for it. He's into it. Solomon right now is allowed to pen. And notice this, though. In this declaration of the Shulamite, she says, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. And I've shared this before, but the spikenard tends to be the one fragrance, a precise and holy fragrance that is attributed to the woman. And here's what we know about it. It primarily is a technical root system. They're called rhizomes. There's some plants that fit into this, and they happen to be those kinds of plants that we say, wow, who would have thought of that? The ginseng is a rhizome plant. I'll tell you why it's fascinating. Turmeric is a rhizome plant. I'll tell you why that's fascinating. But this, in particular, is a rhizome, meaning that the cut that can happen to it under the surface doesn't kill it. It absolutely does not kill it. It provokes, rather, a work that's already designed in it in which it makes a horizontal move, if you would, from the wound out from that area. It makes, if you would, a traversing horizontal move away from that point of what you would call the death cut under the weight of the earth, under the weight of it, to move vertically up as it was designed. In other words, what very often some say is that it's all over. Can't take the weight anymore. But the picture of the spikenard, which is actually a very valuable Ointment, fragrance, beautiful flowering root is what it is, is designed to show us that love doesn't stop at the cut. It actually prolifigates. It moves horizontally along the planes that, as others would say, is impossible from that point of injury. And then it moves against the pressure of the very thing that it has to come up from. It speaks of a resurrection. That's why the beauty of love, even in love that seems to fail, has a resurrection to it. Because God's saying, love is eternal and it's my love. And even in what may be death cuts, it's not what it appears to be. There's a resurrection. It comes back up through the soil and blossoms again. Renders a fragrance. The fragrance is so if the word can be used, and I think it can be compelling, intoxicating, that it has become a cherished spice in what we'd call the old Eastern world. But it's actually become a component part of many of the fragrances and perfumes that are appreciated these days. Spikenard. The woman who was delivering that ointment not to celebrate her name, but to say it meant everything to her was poured out upon the Lord as a token of love to him. Everything that that represented, which was wealth, literally, it would have been her dowry. It would have been the value that some man would have looked at and said, she's pretty, but she's also got a lot in the bank. That's a woman that I can bank on. She gave it all to the Lord. Meaning that no matter how she was perceived, she would have nothing to offer but herself. Herself alone. Want to test a man's faith? So what do you have to offer? Just me, baby. <laughs> just my love for you, my love for God. That's all you get. Oh, <laughs> that you'd been saving up since you were a little lassie. No, just been waiting for my night. It's a wonderful picture that even in the natural realm, the Lord is saying something remarkable. And this is the Shulamite right now. that says, this is what I hold. What was the woman who was sent out in the field by her brother being able to now say in her love poem, Spikenard, mine, it's sent forth, it's to you probably the statement would be, I've been treated pretty harshly in the home. My brothers don't see in me what this king sees of me. The maidens who also are following after him, who are a continual choir in my ear and competitors for my heart's desire, they couldn't possibly know what it is I feel. Feelings are good when they're linked to the love of God and when the desire is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when Jesus is the love of your life, and he says, now, I can give you a life to love and someone in life to be a focus of that expression to them that I am to you. That's the picture. Loves. Poetry, it's potency, and its passion. The reason that fragrances are so costly is dependent upon their potency. In fact, some of these spices are so potent that there has been even, unfortunately at times, the watering down of them. Why? They're so potent, people think they can get around, if you would, diluting them. Ah, it's so potent, I can get more out of it by diluting it. But God says, you get full potency for me. You get the full fragrance of me. You get the complete song, not just the starting lyric, but I give you a chorus. And by the way, if you didn't notice that when you're singing songs, one of the things that the worship bands continually draw you back to is the chorus. It's the catchphrase. It's the thing that seems to sum up either by title or by phrase, what everything else is leading to. That's the fascination about poetry. Sometimes what I will do is actually just silence myself to focus on what it is that's being sung to me. Oh, I can read it, and I do. But I also at times take my eyes off the page to hear what's being sung to me. If the Lord is one who sings over me, sings over you, I want to hear at times, what he's singing to me. It's easy for me to get into the singing because I am a singer. Not so easy necessarily to shut my mouth in order to hear what's being sung over me. It's a beautiful picture what this speaks of. The bundle of myrrh, that's what he's likened to. A bundle of myrrh, that's another plant. And myrrh seems to be attributed to the male. And myrrh, as you know, was the plant that was offered, once it had been harvested, it was a dedicatory spice that was given over to the Lord at his, probably what we would say, two years of life as a child by the kings from the east, and it would speak of his death. Love dies for the sake of love not for the sake of making a point about love lost. It dies for the sake of love, that love might have a place elevated. We have people that take other people's lives and they say it's because of love. It has even been utilized in, if you would, detective work or police work as crimes of passion But when we look at the scriptures and we look at what's being said here, and we look at what Jesus did, it was a passionate work of love that died in our place. Myrrh and aloes his body would be wrapped in. It was a fragrance that was identified not with a marginal death, but with the purposeful death that declared ultimately his love. And the woman is saying here, this guy's love for me, this guy's love for me is one that says he would die for me. My brothers, they send me out to the field and hope that I will die. This king whose eyes are on me, one of thousands that he could choose, is saying in his gift to me, I will die for you. The rhizome, I've been cut, I've been hurt, I've been bleeding, but I move from that point of the injury that I might fulfill my destiny which is rising. Beautiful poetry. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me, lies all night between my bosom, my breasts. A place that nurtures the things of what? Infancy of life. We can get into the anatomy. God's just saying this is a place in which such token items and symbolisms belong. What a man is willing to do for a woman, and what a woman is willing to do for a man. And that's moved beyond the point the cut, to satisfy a destiny which moves along the horizontal of faith, to come up under the weight of what's compressing, ultimately to shoot through. It's a beautiful picture of what love does require, but what love is willing to do. It's a beautiful picture. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna, Blooms that are in the vineyards of Engedi. So I visited Engedi. And it's a place that David retreated to for refreshment. I'm sure it was exquisite in the day. We only get a picture of it today. Many of the grand palm trees have died, eucalyptus are prolific there as well. Beautiful trees that once probably were all over the area. They're scant now, but it doesn't change what biblically it represents. It's an oasis. And the Lord is saying that in the love story, there's an oasis. There are streams that flow to the marriage and between two individuals that provoke one to come out of the heat and come into that which is sustaining. The cakes of raisins, we've learned to say, McDonald's Quarter Pounder, please, and a big order of fries. Okay, that works for some of us. But the Lord allows this mystery of provision to be buried, if you would, that it might rise, but also to have this enigma with regard to why that is a symbol. Well, because raisins are a fruit, and the Lord does fruitful things in our life. So a burger's just not going to cut it. Because the Spirit says, I give you fruit. In the occupation of the oasis of your heart, I render fruit of raisin cakes to sustain you. You will bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and its manifestation is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No laws over those. You will taste of each one. You'll magnify me in each sampling and in each expression. Lord, I want to express it all the time. You will express it in time when time is necessary. Some people get, if you would, discouraged about love because the time and because we're not always at our game. And the Lord says, but are you all into me? If you are all into me, then the game plays out as I allow it to and as I assign it to. We're all into the victory of what games ultimately lead us to, a conclusion. Yay, we won. The Lord won. He traversed the point of being cut. He was the one that in aloe and myrrh was dedicated as the offering to his father in our place. He moved from the point of being dead, traversing with our faith, that horizontal plane pushing through the earth, the stone rolled, and he came out as what? A token of love. It's why we are to be excited about the resurrection and that what it means is that what he did, he died in our place. He was myrrh between our bosoms. and he offered in coming out a cluster of raisin cakes. So what about the henna? The henna is another interesting plant and one of its properties is both analgesic but it's also a coagulant, meaning it stops the bleeding. See, when we come to church, we celebrate a one-time sacrifice of the Lord in which he literally bled out for us. But we're never to take away from that by sharing per se with others our bloody circumstances. It's just a part of life, but it's not the end of life. His was the end of life that he might guarantee the beginning of life for us. And henna is again one of those flowers as well that they would use in the manufacturing of the dyeing of wools and fabrics. When it is crushed and pulverized, it renders in the process of dyeing a red hue depending on how long it's soaked. But it needs to be crushed and it's another picture that the father took pleasure in his love story through his son to his bride, the church, that he would be pleasured to crush his son, to render what? The red, the covering that grants us forgiveness. And I think that in this as well, when we see the spikenard, the myrrh and the henna, how are we doing with our precious fragrances, the ointments that so need to be a part of the love story within the homes? When we look at what this implies, it means that there's a covering in its symbolism That we all get wounded in love, but there's one way to look at it. It points to the Lord who was wounded severely for love. And if he was, we shall be. And if what he showed us in his woundings was even greater love, and with certainty that this is a very short tenure to endure such woundings, then it's nothing to come out of anything in which we have been wounded. It's nothing if again as was stated, Jesus being the love of your life will give you a life to love and an object of the affection of your love, which typifies either a bride for a man or a husband for a woman, and it's a beautiful mix-up. It's a homogenation of Two very uniquely and profound statements that God is making concerning poetry and potency and passion. The Beloved says this in conclusion, well, not in conclusion. Behold, you are fair. My love, behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And fair means in this context, one who quietly is in approval, quietly in approval. The things that she assesses, the things that he sees in her, he says. Man, such agreeability, such reasonableness. Remember that in the term of justice, it means reasonable and fair. And fair simply means that there is an agreeability that touches the heart of the king. God expects love in the context of poetry and potency And what we also know as passion to have a fairness to it. And though all things seemingly are not fair, God says this is what love, though, defines itself in, a fairness, reasonable to who I am and reasonable to the picture that you are, fair. We can be so unfair, God says, my maidens are fair. Fairer than fair. So when you hear the title of My Fair Lady, which was an excellent musical, it was a woman that was actually being raised up from nothing to something. There was a challenge. Can you make this woman into anything? I can make a woman into anything. Can you make her fair? Can you put her at the top? of where she would be the sole focus of every eye in the pavilion. Taking someone who was in rags on the streets and raised her up to be a woman of stately manner, dignity, fairness, that's a picture too. It's actually a beautiful musical in terms of what it connotates that we've been brought up from nothing, elevated to something that the king exclusively says, that's my woman. And everything about her, what once she could not do, she now does with consummate skill and precision. And she says to him, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. There's terminology that's important to be utilized, both that speaks of the beauty and sensitivity of a woman within the home and the striking appearance of handsomeness and strength to the man. We know when we look into the mirror what it's saying. Change is happening. Some of you notice that there's a change that has happened in me. Right? I have half the beard I once had, which makes me now a goatee. Don't know if I did right, by it, but I couldn't tolerate the mask over my beard any longer. I so said I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with this. And because I had some people cheering that I have some facial hair remaining, for their sake I left it on. But I want to get back to my little chubby baby face so that I can appreciate the full meltdown as it happens. But what I'm saying is this change does happen but love says change has never happened. That's why when you look at the aging of the saints, the similarities, Don't know if there's going to be a big similarity with me, Chrissy, but (laughs) the way that we work together has a similitude that cannot be denied. It's through the strength and the beauty. It's through the handsomeness that even right now this woman looks back and says, oh, pleasant are you. And so with that, men... Part of this charge of being poets within our marriages and being potent within our sacrifice and our giving and within our passion is being pleasant. And when these things are in place, as time permits, they unfold a beautiful love story that even as these tents let down, and they do, they will. God says, what a beautiful song you were. I sang over you. You caught the chorus of it. You hummed it through the end of the tenure of your marriage. And now you both come up to banquet with me. So this story is significant. I know it's only several verses, but what verse are you on right now? Where are we at? I'm so glad that I have a confidence that the Lord has not left me at any time. He's not left Christy at any time. And what he thinks of her, he thinks of me. And what he thinks of me, he thinks of her. What he thinks of us, he thinks of our children. What he thinks of my family, he thinks even more so of you. I think that's a great word. Let's pray. And as we do so, we're going to close. And I think a wonderful song. I've been so impressed with it. And because I'm so impressed with it, I'm going to read you something. In fact, girls, come on up here, would you? Just sneak on up here. Psalm 8, verse 4 declares, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and with honor. And this is one of those songs that speaks of the attributes of the Lord, hidden in the stars. In Psalm 147, which I'm nearing, Thanks, Vince. Verse 4 of 147, you can mark it. He counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth. Did you hear the rains when I was speaking concerning love today? Showers of blessings. But to anchor you once again, he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Is it any difficult for your name to be called by the God who names the stars and for your name to have a more precious resonance in his ears, and by his voice, than to the inanimate objects of stars? But we get to enjoy them.